Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, are there any means by which we can understand the characteristics of an enlightened being? Yes. Though no single means of knowing totally captures Buddhahood or enlightenment. One way we can know enlightened beings is through their character traits. An enlightened being will be generous, morally upright, patient, wise, diligent, energetic, and consumed of equanimity. Fascinating. Those are very human characteristics. We have all known people in our lives with such characteristics before. Indeed. And that is no accident. Buddhahood and enlightenment are accessible to everyone and anyone. Though they are characteristics that we can cultivate, it nonetheless seems very hard to perfect those characteristics, not to mention all the other important components of Buddhahood and enlightenment. This is very true. It takes a great deal of practice and study. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we'll be discussing the paramitas in Buddhism. What are the paramitas? How ought one cultivate them? How do understandings of them change over time? We hope you enjoy. So, what are the paramitas in Buddhism? The word paramita refers to a character trait or quality of an enlightened being, and thus ought to be cultivated on the path to reaching enlightenment. These qualities are most frequently discussed in the context of bodhisattvas, But as you'll see, their purview sometimes goes further than just that of the bodhisattva path. This list of character traits has many iterations, some of them with different numbers of traits or different traits included. Which traits are selected as being the most important, and how many you see change between Theravada, Mahayana, or Vajrayana texts is reflective of these doctrinal differences. We will go through a couple of iterations of the list of traits and discuss each one individually, and then we'll pull it all together to discuss them all together. The earliest iteration comes to us from the Buddha Vamsa. This is a hagiographical text about the life of Shakyamuni Buddha and the 24 Buddhas that preceded him. Just for clarification, hagiography is a biography written about a mythical or legendary figure, or it's about a historical figure but with legendary or mythical characteristics. So it's not always capital T true because it's written from a place of veneration but it's still very useful and interesting because it conveys doctrine and it conveys interpretation to the people who read it. This Buddha Vamsa text comes to us in the Pali Canon in the Sutta Pitaka. It was compiled around the 2nd or 1st century BCE, and the context in which it offers this list is in describing character qualities of Buddhahood. These characteristics are given in Pali, but I will be giving them first in Pali and then in Sanskrit when the two differ. The list of ten paramitas is as follows. Dana, generosity, giving of oneself. Shila, virtue, morality, proper conduct. Nekama, or Naishkramya, renunciation. Panya, or Prajna, wisdom, discernment. Virya, energy, diligence, vigor, effort. Kanti, or Kashanti, Patience, tolerance, forbearance, acceptance, endurance. Satya or satya, truthfulness, honesty. 
Aditana or Adisthana, determination, resolution, Metta, goodwill, friendliness, loving kindness, and finally, Upeka or Upeksha, equanimity or serenity. If you remember from some of our other lists of characteristics or factors that we have discussed in the context of Buddhism, Vidya, energy, and Upeksha, equanimity, are two of the seven factors of enlightenment or awakening. Additionally, Metta, loving kindness, and Upeksha are two of the four Brahma Viharas, or meditative states which elevate a person spiritually. We learned about those in the Metta Sutta. The fact that these are shared in other lists we've seen before, and we'll see again later, underscores their importance in Buddhism, but it also shows that there is a great deal of overlap in the various iterations of Buddhist thinking. These spaces of overlap are particularly useful for scholars as a window into the history and the context of the authors of particular texts and commentaries. Sometimes this overlap problematizes what we might think of in the modern era as strict sectarian and doctrinal boundaries that separate Buddhists. The Paramitas are an example of such a case. There were certainly doctrinal debates and differences of opinion that we can see playing out in the various texts, such as the Mahayana-Theravada debate, but while that may have been the case, Mahayana and Theravada Buddhism shared a lot more in common than we might infer from the texts. For example, practices of the Arhat path were not seen to be totally out of place in Mahayana spaces. Similarly, Bodhisattva ideals were not entirely and totally disavowed by Theravada thinkers. There's a great deal of strawmanning going on in both directions in the texts, and Western scholars and translators are guilty of reading their own context backwards into history and across cultural barriers. Specifically, there's an unconscious bias towards equating the Mahayana-Theravada divide with the Catholic-Protestant divide, but that simply doesn't overlay. The Paramitas demonstrate that the Catholic-Protestant divide is being unfairly and unduly read back onto the textual traditions within Mahayana and Theravada. Anyways, moving on to another iteration of the Paramitas, we have six Paramitas that are directly identified with the Bodhisattva path in Mahayana Buddhism. They come to us in the Prajnaparamita Sutras, which were composed from around 100 BCE through 600 CE, which is after the Buddhavamsa was compiled. This list is as follows. Dana, generosity, giving of oneself. Shila, virtue, morality, discipline. Kushanti, patience, tolerance, forbearance. Virya, energy, diligence. Jhana, one-pointed concentration or contemplation. And Prajna, wisdom and insight. Renunciation, determination, equanimity, metta, and satya have all gone missing, and we have added in jhana, which is meditation. Determination, equanimity, metta, and satya are still very important, but are thought to be captured by other characteristics on the list. Determination is captured by kashanti and virya. Truthfulness and compassion are captured by shila, and equanimity is captured by prajna. Additionally, the de-emphasis of renunciation represents a clear doctrinal development in the Mahayana. With the popularization of texts such as the Vimalakirti Sutra, which emphasize the Bodhisattva path in the context of somebody who truly lives in the world, you can see why renunciation has been dropped. The next iteration of the list of paramitas comes to us in the Vajrayana and Mahayana tradition, and it is the same as the previous list but with four additions. You might be asking why I said that this iteration of the list comes about in Vajrayana and Mahayana. This is one of those cases where the strict sectarian boundaries don't pan out historically. The list is shared because there are Vajrayana elements to some Mahayana practice and to some Mahayana doctrine, and also vice versa. 
For example, Shingon Buddhism in Japan is Vajrayana and Mahayana combined into one. And this is the list of 10 paramitas that they use. This list of 10 total characteristics appears in the Avatamsaka Sutra and the Maharatnakuta Sutra, which were both compiled around the first centuries BCE through CE. The added four paramitas to this list are Upaya, skillful means, Pranidhana, Bodhisattva vow to save all sentient beings, Bala, spiritual power, and Jhana, knowledge. The addition of Upaya, skillful means, and Pranidhana, the Bodhisattva vow, reflects the increasing emphasis on the Bodhisattva path, particularly in East Asian Vajrayana Buddhism. You'll remember that the use of skillful means becomes an increasingly important method of saving sentient beings throughout Mahayana history, and that ties directly in with the Bodhisattva vow. Adding spiritual power and knowledge reflect the esoteric touches that have been added to the path. This spiritual power, referred to by Bala, is the ability to engage in seemingly supernatural actions, such as duplicating oneself, or making oneself invisible. Similarly, jhana, or knowledge, refers to knowledge gained through meditation and practice. We have previously compared the Theravada path as a brute force password cracking method to the Mahayana path, which we regard as the method of attempting to obtain or to crack several characters in the password at one time. Those bits of the password that you know in Mahayana can be referred to collectively as jhana. It is divine knowledge about emptiness, dukkha, impermanence, suchness, etc. How ought one cultivate them? Practice makes perfect. There is no textually defined means of perfecting these things other than practicing them. In order to perfect giving or dana, one must treat giving as a learning pursuit, like learning a new skill or a new language. As for the more abstract ones, such as wisdom, knowledge, or spiritual power, those can be perfected through study and practice, but also through practice of other paramitas. These perfections are all inseparably linked, so mastering one necessarily results in or even directly entails mastering others. For example, in order to perfect giving, one must perfect their wisdom and knowledge. By learning the true nature of selfless giving, they can do it correctly on command. Similarly, experiential knowledge gained from meditative practice and study contributes to knowledge, wisdom, etc. Additionally, experiential learning changes a person in such a way that they will behave differently in the world, causing them to act in a more morally upright fashion, which contributes to the perfection of morality. There are similar lines of reasoning for all of these ten perfections. Note that there are bad motivations for practicing these perfections as well. For example, if you try to cultivate moral perfection just for moral superiority's sake, the outcomes will still be karmically good in that you'll be morally upright, but you won't advance on the bodhisattva path. Self-originating or self-centered motivations are counterproductive to the bodhisattva path because of non-self, and will mislead practitioners in a significant way. The only motivation that can lead to consummate perfection of these paramitas is salvation of all sentient beings. Remember that the definition of a bodhisattva can be roughly described as a being who has achieved enlightenment but has not yet allowed themselves to enter nirvana because they still have one attachment left, the salvation of all sentient beings. It is not a desire for capital S self, it's not a desire for the power and status that comes with being a bodhisattva, it's just the remedying of dukkha in every and any case in which it arises. How do understandings of the paramitas change over time? These perfections are discussed in Buddhism going as far back as the 1st or 2nd century BCE at least, 
So naturally, there are several phases of their interpretation and contextualization in the rest of the texts. Here, we are presented with an important methodological consideration when dealing with doctrine that is worth mentioning. There are two inseparably linked perspectives from which we can examine doctrinal points. We have dealt with them many times on the show, but we haven't really actually mentioned what we were doing as we did it. The first is usually called a vertical perspective, which is the historical perspective. Text A is written on a topic and comes first, then text B, then text C. And we can assume that text C represents discussion and engagement with texts A and B. We can assume that there is a chronology that can be established through textual quotes and references to earlier texts, and that text A and B form the context for text C. In this way, we can trace change over time in a text, but also in an idea. However, this alone is an incomplete picture of doctrine, especially the doctrine in question that you're studying. To be complete, we need the second perspective, which is usually called the horizontal perspective. This represents texts that come out all around the same time, but in different places, about a particular topic. Texts A, B, and C all came out around the same time, but in geographically separated places, so we can see discussion and engagement with a topic, but each of these texts reflect different cultural and contextual ideas and backgrounds, rather than chronological development of thought on a topic. In terms of the paramitas, both of these sort of perspectives have occurred in the study of doctrine. There's the chronological or the vertical perspective, wherein the texts that come later will reference earlier ones, but there's also the geographical and horizontal. In the 9th century of the Common Era, for example, texts come out in Tibet, China, and Japan, all mentioning paramitas. This makes study and analysis complicated because there's so many separate but related streams of thought, but we will attempt to capture them here. The earliest iteration of thought we'll mention is the one captured and adopted by Theravada Buddhists and also some early Mahayana Buddhists. In this iteration of the Paramitas, there were the first set of ten that came to us in the Buddhavamsa. Generosity, virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, goodwill, and equanimity. These were looked on as being descriptors and qualities of the Buddha which cast him as a role model. At this stage in Buddhism's history, they were not heavily emphasized as being modes or pursuits of practice for everyday people. Just like the seven factors of enlightenment, they were ways by which we can have a taste of what enlightenment and Buddhahood look like. Additionally, they give us a clue as to how we can know an enlightened person when we see them. The qualities described in these lists describe the Buddha to his audience, and thus they distinguish him and his enlightened disciples from everyday unenlightened people from people following different religious traditions, such as Hinduism or Jainism, and from people who claimed to have reached enlightenment but who hadn't really. They are certainly virtuous character traits to strive for, but they are not described as specific pursuits in themselves at this time in history yet. Buddhahood and enlightenment are not totally captured in the scope of these ten paramitas. The next iteration of thought is the six bodhisattva perfections of which many are shared, but two are different and four are missing. Generosity, virtue, patience, energy, one-pointed concentration, and wisdom. These six perfections are adopted by Mahayana Buddhism as being pursuits of practice on the path to bodhisattvahood. 
They're still descriptors, but the bodhisattva path is imagined in Mahayana as being a path that everyday people ought to pursue, and these perfections are presented in this fashion as a method for that pursuit. These paramitas answer the question of how do we overcome our current situation and become bodhisattvas. Though there is overlap with the original ten paramitas, they are presented not just as descriptors but as prescriptions for practice. We're meant to make these personal and perfect them ourselves. The next iteration of thought brings in these same six, but now with four more. This new total of ten is adopted by esoteric Buddhism throughout Tibet, China, Korea, and Japan. And the new four are the ones we mentioned before, skillful means, bodhisattva vow to save all sentient beings, spiritual power, and knowledge. The interesting change that we see with these is that it regards people as already being enlightened. The previous iteration presented paramitas as a possible means of practicing to attain enlightenment and bodhisattvahood. This new set of ten imagines them as being descriptions of an enlightened being and prescriptions for practice as an enlightened being at the same time. The way we come to this conclusion is by seeing how these additional four paramitas are presented in the texts. They are all four only things that are said to be possessed by fully enlightened beings. Only enlightened beings can use skillful means. Only enlightened beings have made this bodhisattva vow to save all sentient beings. Only enlightened beings have spiritual powers. Only enlightened beings have divine knowledge. This reimagination stems from an increasing emphasis on original enlightenment in later Mahayana and in Vajrayana. Enlightenment is reimagined not as being, quote-unquote, the far shore, as it is frequently described, but as being a characteristic of us here and now that must be realized and returned to. We hope you enjoyed our discussion of the paramitas in Buddhism. Join us next time where we will discuss non-attachment. What is non-attachment in Buddhism? What texts discuss it and how? How does the definition of the term change over time? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com, or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.